And it is a great pleasure to welcome to the program for his fourth, as near as we can calculate, visit, Stephen Pinker of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, who is one of the leading members of my profession, that is to say broadly of the discipline of psychology. He works in cognitive psychology, linguistic science, and has made major contributions, uh, but also has done some major books of great popular value. Many listeners will remember The Language Instinct and How the Mind Works, and now comes a superb new volume titled uh, The Blank Slate, The Modern Denial of Human Nature. Good evening, sir. Good evening. Just wanted to establish that you're here, because <laughs> I now want to tell you something. Uh, I think a, an interesting uh, encounter I had just about a week ago. I visited my former graduate student, Tagore Yakabulian, who uh, only married about a year ago, and they've just had a baby, and the infant, pure neonate, about two months old, and uh, we, I went in rather gingerly fashion into the nursery to look at the baby. Uh, but I feared that I'd made a little bit too much noise because the kid kind of looked not towards me, too old, uh, too young rather, to make that direct pinpoint reaction. But he looked a little startled. And I felt terrible because if I, by overstimulating with a untoward noise, startled him, then I've laid down inadvertently, and uh, on, but I've laid down a kind of engram of anxiety which may very well persist through all the rest of his life and may have warped him in a way that will show up 20 years from now in, with some terrible consequences. Uh, but uh, one worries, of course, what's going to happen to kids. And when we sat down back in the living room, we were chatting about that. And as the elder fellow in the conversation, I advised my former student, Jacobillian, to keep Junior away from the media, particularly from media exposure, uh, lest... Uh, he uh, developed uh, a kind of, uh, lest his inborn innocence and his inborn decency be turned toward uh, the moral corruption of modern society. It's very important that you protect kids from the evil influences of malign social institutions. Uh, but on the other hand, as I thought about it more, I said to Jacobillian, but there's something we can be reassured about. No matter how evil the world out there is, and no matter what kinds of trauma may have been laid down, in early experience, even my the noise I made in the nursery, uh, we can trust that ultimately uh, Junior is free because, after all, uh, beyond mere mind lies a sphere of soul which is uh, which enables him to uh, essentially free himself and develop himself. He is master of uh, all that lies beyond the mere corporeal. Uh, and that was my experience thinking about and talking with my former student about the influences that are that will shape and that are visible in his uh, newborn son's life. How does that strike you? Yes. Uh, well, I think you can uh, have have a um, uh, peaceable peaceful conscience because I don't think that you lay down any engram that uh, he's going to complain about to his psychotherapist in 25 years' time. There is a widespread belief that, that uh, how children are treated in the first couple of years of, of life uh, shapes them for life, leaves, leaves some indelible stamp on their personality. We have it from uh, psychoanalysis, the school of psychiatry mm -hmm. uh, founded by Freud. We have it to some extent in behaviorism, the idea that uh, all behavior comes uh, as a product of conditioning. We have it in the recent revival of the idea that the brain is completely plastic in the first three years of life and how the child is treated in the first three years of life sets him on a path uh, for, the, for the rest of his life. Uh, there's very little evidence that any of these beliefs are true. Uh, it certainly doesn't mean that you can uh, mistreat a child. I mean, a child is a human being, and there are lots of reasons not to abuse or neglect a child um, other than 
that it's going to turn them into a particular kind of adult. But the old idea that as the twig is bent, so grows the branch, mm-hmm. um, I think is uh, not only is there very little evidence for it, but there's increasing evidence against it. Alexander Pope, as the twig is bent, so is the tree inclined. Yes. Uh, that was my blank slate uh, mistake. I offered <laughs> the three classic ones that your book addresses. The second, of course, is the myth of the noble savage. The noble savage. Uh, the blank slate idea we can trace back to John John Locke in the 17th century. Um, Rousseau in the 18th century lays out that whole doctrine of the noble savage. What is it? Uh, this is the idea that literally that um, human beings in a state of nature, that is without a government or police force, are naturally peaceable and cooperative, and that selfishness, greed. Uh, aggression are products of corrupt social institutions. That deep down, the uh, inner savage in, a, in us, uh, the essential human nature, has no evil impulses. Inner savage is good. Savage good. Yes. Right. Society bad. In a nutshell, yes. That was Rousseau's view. That was Rousseau's And then view. I came to the last of the three great myths that you address. I didn't do as, quite as well with that one, but it was the myth of the ghost, the ghost in the machine. machine. Explain It's that. a term from the philosopher Gilbert Ryle. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the police later used it as the title of one of their albums, but they stole it from Ryle. Ryle used it to uh, make fun of a doctrine that he attributed to Descartes, that the mind is completely a different kind of stuff uh, than the body. It's not nerves. It's not uh, the frontal cortex or anything in the brain. Uh, according to Descartes, the, the brain controls the uh, the mechanics of the body, pulling your hand away from a, a hot stove. But, but not thought, can... contemplation, and the higher emotions. Exactly. According to Descartes, these this was an um, indivisible entity, the mind, which made contact with the brain at the uh, particular structure called the pineal gland, but which otherwise lived in a, in a separate realm. You had to get it into the mind, or into the brain, rather, because if people lose their brains, they seem to lose their minds. <laughs> and so what he says by positing the pineal gland as the point of, of junction is that um, mind is still out there, but if it can't get back into the person through the pineal gland, you won't see evidence of it. Well, exactly. The, I mean, the mind somehow has to exert its control over the muscles, which are obviously mm-hmm. physical objects. I will myself to pick up this book, and, and uh, real flesh and blood, real matter has to move in space. And indeed, one of the classic problems for the belief in dualism, the belief that mind is a separate kind of mm-hmm. stuff from body, is how you get the two to interact. Uh, a flash goes off, physicists describe it, how does the soul know that the flash went off, and then how does the soul translate its exercise of free will into actual muscle contractions? But you see, that that first um, of the three things I tried to lay out there uh, about um, making a noise and startling the infant, actually that reflects something that I think really happened with my own son. I was an assistant professor at Yale when my son was born. Uh, Big at Yale in those days were uh, Gassel's studies of um, of development. And uh, this is even before the Piaget stuff really hit in a big way. But there are sequences in development. According to the Gazelle uh, data, by the age of three months, a normal infant will turn to a sound, to a, 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 to a startling or unexpected sound. Uh, and being the young psychologist interested in whether his son was developing properly, I would sneak into the nursery and bang a pot. <laughs> I did that at the age of three months, and my son did not turn. 
So I banged harder and harder. Eventually did a startle response and did turn or screamed or something. And later on, I developed this terrible sense of guilt. I was a young fellow then, and Freudianism was still in its heyday, or at least hadn't gone into the proper decline that it has now received. And I began to really worry, my God, what have I done? What have I laid down in terms of traumatization which will affect his future? Yes, right. I mean, children have to be resilient. They, we evolved in a uh, in a world in which there were dangers uh, all around, in which parents mm -hmm. couldn't indulge uh, their children all the way through childhood. That after the next child came, the uh, mm -hmm. firstborn would be dumped into a, a uh, peer group and have to fend for himself. Um, there's certainly a lot of ways in which parents can make children. So you, miserable. you're uh, absolving me of any guilt, but I should yes, something I, I didn't add, which I tell you now, that later on, as a teenager, 14, 15, he became. Uh, a devotee of acid rock and maybe that was because of <laughs> the go. noise that I inflicted on him at the very beginning right what do you think uh, it's a good enough story I won't argue with it <laughs> now the serious point of your book of course is that we make terrible mistakes by pursuing these three mythic notions when we try to think about uh, human experience human existence yes and about the course of human development yes um, the, the blank slate I think became uh, a, a widely held belief in the 20th century for some understandable reasons. It seemed to be a bulwark against racism and sexism. You couldn't say that uh, ethnic minorities were innately uh, inferior just because they were poorer or uh, or got lower test scores. You couldn't say that women were uh, constitutionally incapable of brain work or political power just because um, they tended not to have positions of power or wealth. You could mm -hmm. say it was simply the way that they were brought up. Uh, and indeed, there's a lot of truth to the idea that many human differences don't have a basis in biology. The people who thought that women were incapable of doing science were wrong. And the people who thought that ethnic minorities could never uh, get a Harvard degree or win Nobel Prizes were wrong. Um, but it has been taken to extremes. It's um, led to the belief that, uh, that we're indistinguishable that political equality requires av avowing the faith that all people are biologically identical. Those are uh, almost certainly not, not true in terms of differences among individuals. Well, doesn't political correctness require more than that, not only avowing that all people are biologically identical, but they are all of them equal in their potential abilities and therefore excellence is never to be particularly noted or rewarded because that is a kind of snobbish uh, elaboration of the virtue or the achievements of one at the cost of another who merely has been disadvantaged and that's why he hasn't managed the same sort of achievement. Exactly, that all differences are, are basically accidents. They're accidents of uh, who, you, wh what social stratum you happen to be lucky enough to be born into or uh, the way you, your parents treated you compared to the way someone else's parents One of the great you. areas in which that issue has hit the fan, so to speak, and has been under intense discussion, a nature versus nurture, a genetic differences versus uh, experiential differences kind of argument, which has gone on for a long time, has to do with IQ scores, particularly of American blacks as against American whites, even when you control for social level and educational level. Yes, and, and that's what made the, the uh, book The Bell Curve by Richard Herstein mm -hmm. and Charles Murray so inflammatory when it came out eight years ago. Even though race was only one out of something like 17 chapters, and most of the book was simply on individual differences uh, within a race in intelligence. And mm -hmm. I think they had excellent evidence that among whites uh, and among blacks, differences among individuals have uh, a, a strong genetic component. They 
in order to show that IQ tests were valid, both with, uh, among blacks and among whites, they tried to explain the difference between the races, where by their own admission the evidence is shakier. And in the blank slate, I uh, say that I'm not persuaded by their evidence that the difference between races is necessarily uh, uh, genetic in part or in whole. Um, but certainly within a race, I think the evidence is overwhelming. The difference between one individual and another has uh, partly genetic causes. But is it conceivable that there would be for different human, one doesn't use the word race anymore, but for different human uh, groups sharing a considerable uh, genetic endowment which developed originally in fair isolation, thus uh, different stocks of human beings, is it conceivable that there may be, in fact, inborn differences on average in intellectual capability. I mean, it's it's not impossible. It's uh, the although most genetic variation in humans is within a race rather than between races. That is, the uh, two Swedes, for example, are genetically much closer than the average of uh, Swedes and the average of, uh, say, Bantus. Um, but there are some statistical differences in gene frequency, so it's not impossible, although it's, it would be, it's very hard to show, and I think the evidence doesn't compel that conclusion right now. Another area in which um, this issue, uh, nature versus nurture, and are there any inborn differences? No, of course there aren't. That's a sort of a... Uh, a uh, a, an authoritarian view of things, and it's not really democratic to think that there are inborn differences laid down by nature. Another area in which all of that gets much exercised and has been over the last 20 years relates to basic sex differences. Yes. Male and female created he them, says the Bible, but that doesn't suit the feminist at all. Well, it, it, de it depends on which feminists you talk about because there are many different strains mm -hmm. of feminist thought. And I think the core of feminism, which, which is a commitment to equity, the idea that women should not be treated unfairly. They shouldn't be discriminated against, they shouldn't be harassed, uh, they, they shouldn't be assaulted, is completely compatible with the idea that men and women may not be identical, because it's a commitment to, mm. to uh, fairness and to decency. There are strains of feminism, uh, not necessarily the majority, that believe that men and women are indistinguishable and that all differences between them come from social conditioning. I doubt whether any of those theoreticians actually uh, believes that in her heart of hearts, or when say she gives advice to her teenage daughter, I don't think she would say, "Oh, but she women. may not." But she may not have a teenage daughter, <clears throat> because one expression of that strong conviction, that it's all a social construction, the differences between the sexes, and that uh, women can be just as much um, athletic, just as interested in mathematics, just as tough as men are, if they choose to be, and they always have the ability to remake themselves. They are free. Uh, of uh, any constraints of the past upon the present. And what evidence of all of that for such um, radical feminists has been to avoid involvement with males, indeed a turn towards lesbianism as a kind of political statement. Yes, I think that that was, I think, popular, um, Not probably not as popular now as it may have been, say, in the 70s and the 80s. Again, I think that's, it is certainly one, one uh, fringe of, of feminism. Um, but I argue very strongly in the, in the blank slate that uh, if men and women show statistical differences, it doesn't mean that the core of feminism was a mistake, that I think the core of feminism grew out of an enlightenment value of the, uh, the uh, focus on the individual and the rights of the individual. And I think even if they, when men and women are different, it uh, is never justified to discriminate against an individual based on some group statistic. You are a very well-known representative 
of a certain important trend in modern uh, modern behavioral theory or modern in the modern social disciplines, the social and biological disciplines. Namely, you represent uh, evolutionary psychology, uh, and you're very friendly to sociobiology. These things do overlap, and they all are in the Darwinian tradition, with a strong stress as well on uh, genetic uh, patterning, laying down not merely strong predispositions for individuals, but laying down the very nature, or being the basis of the very nature of the species. Uh, as a psychological entity. Human nature is really there. There is no blank slate, is what you are saying, as so many others say. E.O. Wilson, who's been on this program a number of times, as well as, in some ways, the father of modern sociobiology, one of the great exemplars of it. And he has very similar arguments. It's amazing. I think of you, and say E.O. Wilson, and uh, the fact that both of you have been much assaulted by other members of your disciplines who have a very different view and by certain students and much commended by yet others uh, and there's sort of a raging argument about you guys that's gone on for years every time you really stand up and say something uh, significant uh, and particularly when you say it in a major book like the one now in hand the blank slate and i think of you in comparison to my old buddy dave schramm did you ever know Dave Schramm? I didn't, no. He was a, an astrophysicist and cosmologist. He was at the end of his life, which ended in a, uh, an airplane accident, actually, uh, piloting his own plane, still only in his late 50s. Terrible loss, but he was uh, uh, the vice president for research of the University of Chicago at that time. And Dave is one of the fathers of string theory uh, and uh, was very much interested in uh, you know, the whole possibility of alternate or infinite universes and all of that stuff. Um, and he was never assaulted, nor yes. are any of the ones who put that kind of startling theoretical view forward in popular terminology as well as in scientific terminology. They never get assaulted by their colleagues and by the general public. They never get snotty reviews from science editors. I wonder what is the difference between oh, I... uh, the freedom to exercise any ideas in public that the astrophysicist has as compared to the minefield through which the evolutionary psychologists have to walk. And I pose that question as we pause for some commercials. I look forward to your explanation. And directly back to Steve Pinker. Uh, we are talking tonight about his very important new book, The Blank Slate, The Modern Denial of Human Nature. So why do you guys get into so much <laughs> trouble when astrophysicists have a, an easier time with the general public and with their colleagues? Well, conceptions of human nature affect so many other things. They affect uh, political theory. How should society be organized? That's, uh, as I think James Madison said, what is government but the biggest of all reflections on human nature? If you believe in, in the noble savage, that deep down we're all peaceable and cooperative, you'll tend to be an anarchist who needs a police force and a government who needs to force people to delineate property. That government governs best, which governs not at all. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Whereas if you think that people are um, uh, likely to have tendencies to theft and aggression and selfishness, then you'll, uh, you'll believe in a strong government and a police force, uh, as Hobbes argued for mm -hmm. in saying that uh, without a common power to keep them all in awe, men are in a condition of war of all against all. Mm -hmm. And their lives are nasty, brutish, and short. And, uh, indeed. Um, uh, likewise, it uh, affects our um, uh, the source of values. Do um, what can we reasonably strive for as individuals in a society? What should we aim for? A, a utopia in which you can uh, train out 
antisocial uh, tendencies like um, selfishness, and therefore have uh, a government authority in charge of child rearing, uh, or our children going to develop the way they develop, and uh, we just have to cope with it. It affects religion. Do uh, does morality uh, depend on uh, a belief in a soul that gets rewarded or punished in an afterlife, or does the person go out of existence when the organ called the brain dies? And if uh, we don't have a, a soul that survives the death of the body and that gets rewarded or punished in an afterlife, why should we be moral? If well, is there then a theory of human nature, a particular one, which is sort of conducive or conducive towards, or which disposes towards? the development and erection of more or less democratic institutions? Well, the, the foundation of democracy uh, is really a, a jaundiced theory of human nature, uh, almost a cynical view mm -hmm. that humans, if left to their own devices, will try to profit at one another's expense, and therefore you need uh, a social contract. That is, people will sacrifice some of their freedom in return uh, for, for um, protection against other people exerting their freedom. Uh, but by the same token, this jaundiced theory of human nature is applied to potential leaders, that rather than entrusting a charismatic revolutionary leader whose authority comes from some presumption of moral superiority mm -hmm. over his predecessors, you assume that power corrupts, that people in power are going to delude themselves about their own wisdom and about their own virtue, and therefore you build in checks and balances to, so that one person's ambition will always counteract another. Uh, and these, the best statement of that was from James Madison, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, no controls on government would be necessary. I wonder if we are tilted in that direction ideationally and ideologically by the by Judeo-Christian religious precepts. After all, uh, the Western religious tradition from its origin was quite aware of evil yes. and quite aware of the presence of evil and its corrupting character. Yes, indeed. And in fact, religions, since they um, are embedded in a community and the religious leaders were faced with the behavior management problem of preventing people from being at each other's throats, I think came across some uh, insights, some valid, some yeah. coercive, about how to get people to live in, in greater uh, harmony. Among them, the idea that we have a uh, tendency toward uh, uh, selfish or evil acts, but other parts of the mind, uh, a conscience, can counteract those temptations. The last century, concluded two years ago, was uh, the most evil, in a way, century in the recorded history of mankind. If you measure it by uh, the amount of genocidal and democidal, as some call it, killing that was done. According to Rudolf Rummel, who political scientist who's worked up the data on this, um, Death by Government, which is the title of his summatory volume after some five previous ones, Death by Government, governments killing, uh, not in war, killing other uniformed soldiers, but killing people, their own citizens and citizens of other countries, uh, uh, managed to dispatch some 190 million people in the 20th century. Uh, the genocide of the Jew uh, against the Jews, the Holocaust, is uh, an outstanding example, but apart from those six million, another 184 million, by rough estimate, were killed by governments, not necessarily thrown into gas chambers, but allowed to starve and kind of pushed into starvation, or otherwise just abandoned on an empty plain and desert and killed, and so on and so on. 
one could name many. Uh, one, of the, one of the last great examples of that was the genocide uh, that Pol Pot ran against uh, about one quarter to one third of the population of the country he controlled in Cambodia. What is one to make of that? that? That's all just further evidence of man's great capacity for evil and for blind homicidal rage. Uh, and Hobbes was undoubtedly right. That's there in our nature. Sometimes it comes out. But is it in our... How is it in our nature? And what ultimately to say that things of this sort are in our nature means that they have a neural basis or a total biological basis that one can roughly approximate. Ultimately, you may discover more detail about what mediates it all biologically and neurologically. What is one to make? I'm yeah. a little bit too long-winded. I'm posing this most important and most aching of all questions. What does one to make of the prevalence of human evil in political affairs? Yes. Well, certainly the, uh, the habit of killing people who are a nuisance to you uh, probably goes back as uh, way before human recorded history, probably before our ancestors were even humans. Um, and um, the, I think the default setting for human sympathy in the moral sense is to apply it to your own circle, your own tribe, village, family, clan, and that other people outside the circle are mentally treated as less than human. And it's rather easy to flip the switch to, to um, contract that We circle. and they, us and them. Us and them, we and they. Yeah. Um, we see it in, uh, in your field of social psychology and classic experiments, say, by Philip Zimbardo that got mm -hmm. uh, mild-mannered Stanford University students to start to brutalize each other as yeah. soon as you divided them into... Or the Milgram business. experiments Milgram. where people deliver shocks at your That's right. investigation. Um, and uh, so getting rid of uh, neighbors who are competing with you or who, who are in some way a nuisance is, uh, is the oldest story in the book. What's unusual in the 20th century is that um, many of these genocides were really ideologically driven. You had these the two great murderous ideologies of uh, Nazism and totalitarian Marxism. And uh, remarkably, in terms of their beliefs in human nature, they were in many ways opposites. The Nazis had these these uh, pseudo-scientific theories of race. The Marxists had no use for race. The Nazis twisted um, Darwinism. The Nazis believed there was a human nature. Rather, it was, there was a racial nature. Exactly, that there was a racial nature. Yeah. Quite right. Whereas the Marxists had no use for uh, any concept. They were tabula rasa. They were blank slate. They were, they were closer to One blank of the big slaves. things in the Soviet Union, and even the Soviet psychologists got much involved in this, was the ambition to construct what they called, quote, the new Soviet man. The new Soviet man. But, but the, uh, the Nazis also wanted to re remake mankind, and mm -hmm. I think that they were... That was one of the two common denominators. One of them was, uh, rather than the democratic ideal of building society around humans as we find them, their ideas were that we have to remake humans. For the Nazis, it consisted of eliminating uh, inferior races and preventing interbreeding between the pure race and uh, other races. For the Marxists, it was controlling every aspect of society so that people through socialization and training and upbringing would uh, be naturally communal and unselfish. But even before that, to get rid of the class enemy. Indeed, uh, yeah, that's the other common denominator, yeah. that both the Nazis and the Marxists believed in struggle as the way of nature and the route to progress. For the Nazis, the struggle was group selection, that is, uh, races uh, competing against each other and the, the strongest surviving. For the Marxists, it was class conflict, the bourgeoisie versus the proletariat. But I think what the feature of psychology that, that both of them amplified was this group against group psychology, the idea that virtue resides in one group, evil in another, 
the for the Nazis, the groups were races. For the Marxists, they were classes. But the uh, ideology, I think, played itself out with the same consequences in both cases. Now, let's add another dimension, uh, namely the Darwinian one. You are intrinsically a Darwinian, as are most people who practice and develop evolutionary psychology or sociobiology, so that you argue that some things that are now dysfunctional in the human repertoire are in the human repertoire because once they were quite functional. You were verging on that, I think, a few minutes ago when you said of our rapacious, a capacity for rapacious uh, homicidal hostility, uh, that I think you were verging on saying once that served uh, certain human groups well, in, in that it, in, it ensured their continued survival, where there was a struggle for survival under far more difficult circumstances that we now face in civilized societies so that the more hostile groups the more hostile uh, uh, people by virtue of genetic determination would have been the ones who lived longer and bred in kind and therefore that becomes sort of a characteristic of human nature itself is that a fair argument a fair version of what yeah, you yeah, more, more or less i mean i, I think that the, the fact that we're products of evolution has left us with, with two tragedies. One of them is that the environment in which we evolved has vanished without a trace uh, or barely a trace and that so some tastes and emotions that were that made some sense in that environment don't do us any good. Including today. murder? Uh, well, so, so a, a thirst for revenge, a desire yeah. to retaliate, uh, which leads to blood feuds and vendettas. Which what are the other tastes that developed on the savannah when we were uh, just getting uh, started a million or two million years uh, ago. A desire for uh, sweets and fats. Uh -huh. um, now, there are other. I think the other legacy is that um, since natural selection doesn't select for um, things that we value morally, uh, for cooperation and harmony, and uh, uh, but rather for reproduction, some of the, uh, I think, our tastes and urges don't lead to personal happiness, but would have led in an ancestral world to more descendants. Not something that's particularly desirable in human affairs, but something that we should recognize in ourselves. Pansexual adultery on the part of the males, at least. Uh, sexual adultery. Well, on the part of both both sexes, although for, for different motives. I think for... But men can plant their seed more readily than women can ovulate. Uh, that's right. Although women can, uh, can, of course, try to get the best possible uh, seed and therefore um, have an affair with the highest quality male while mm -hmm. they get the most willing male to invest in their children. So I don't want to uh, blame either men, men or women, although their, their reasons for adultery can be different. But, but the male wandering eye which does still and and wandering uh, body which does still uh, produce much tension in life and does much uh, misery and unhappiness, much misery and, unhappiness and divorce you think that that is sort of a a biological given in the history of our species. Yeah, it's not that it's not that men have to act on it. I mean, we could have Jimmy Carter who committed adultery in his heart, mm -hmm. but probably not in real life. Uh, but I think those thoughts and those uh, those desires, whether or not they translate into behavior, are with us. And they have a, I think, an evolutionary rationale as transparent as why we we drink when we're thirsty, or why we we prefer foods that have calories to foods that that don't. Um, another example is just our, our um, eye for um, attractive partners, sexual partners. I mean, when you when you think about it, um, the as the humorous friend Leibowitz once said, you really shouldn't marry someone that you're attracted to. You should marry your best friend because you you like your best friend. You have something in common. Why would you spend the rest of your life with someone just because they have a cute nose or because of the shape of their lower lip? We now have reason to believe that signs of beauty 
are actually indicators of fitness and fertility and health. So from a Darwinian perspective, it makes sense that we should be attracted to people with a certain facial geometry. But I don't think it increases human happiness, uh, but it's just a, a legacy of the fact that our tastes w weren't selected for happiness, but rather for uh, these Darwinian goals. There is a large question uh, to not fool around with the questions I put to you, but to come to something that really preoccupies me and has for as long as I've been thinking, I suppose, about human experience particular, and society, particularly in my mature years as a, an academically based social psychologist. And I want to pose that question right now just before we go to another batch of commercials. And it is simply this. Um, why don't we get along better? One remembers yes. that fellow in Los Angeles. Why, why can't, can't we, we just get all along? get along? Um, it seems to me that human society, even with very good access to material fulfillment, has remained radically imperfectible and always unstable. Animal societies are comparatively stable. Gross environmental change will change the way in which lions comport themselves or elephants do. But basically, if the sustaining physical conditions remain more or less constant, so do the patterns of life uh, uh, in all, just about all areas. Uh, they get food the same way, they mate the same way, the family structure changes at certain points, just as has been predetermined, and uh, there's an eternal rhythm and patterning to the life of the lion, uh, to the life of the ant, to the life possibly even of our near uh, neighbors, our near relatives, the anthropoid apes when they're in uh, a, uh, a forest or a mountain setting, though they are dwindling in Africa as we know. But for us, nothing ever holds stable. All human societies seem to undergo transformations. All of them, all of them generate unhappy as well as happy people. Uh, there's a constant struggle for dominance, uh, even in primitive isolated groups, which we used to uh, we used to romanticize. The anthropologists used to romanticize them as living in the kind of Rousseauian, noble savage life. Why? What's so deeply and desperately wrong with uh, the most advanced of all the animals, so that they cannot maintain collectivity in a stable and satisfying way. That's the mere question that you've got three minutes to think about, and then we return to Stephen Pinker, and the answer will be provided. And back to Stephen Pinker. We are drawing from his very important new book, and utterly readable, I should say. These, uh, these popular works that Steve Pinker has done are intended for the general populace. Uh, that is to say, they are entertaining, they are interesting, they are nicely paced, they are full of rich informational supply, and they make very important uh, theoretical points in a totally uh, comprehensible way. And the new book, The Blank Slate, The Modern Denial of Human Nature, ranks with his prior work, The Language Instinct, and How the Mind Works uh, in all of those particulars. But now, drawing from that work, and quite seriously, if one can be serious about this in just a, the short compass of a few minutes, um, why is human society such a mess? Why has it always been? Well, animal societies aren't so innocent either. They, was, I, they, was I over... Idealizing animal societies. So. They, they they seethe with conflict. They there are uh, the men the the males uh, will tear each other to shreds. The females will sometimes uh, eat each other's babies. Mm -hmm. uh, siblings will kill each other in the nest. You got just about any human sin: cannibalism, incest, adultery. Okay. You see in animal but societies. the other factor that I was stressing: the way of life remains constant across generations. Well, yes. No. That is, and that that is another uh, another question, an interesting question. There certainly in human evolution we acquired some extraordinary abilities that you don't see in other species. We have language which allows us to accumulate uh, wisdom of people who came before and their discoveries. 
language is a combinatorial system, so even if we have a, a, a fixed set of rules, we can crank out an unlimited number of sentences. And the reason that we can do that is because other parts of the mind can crank out an unlimited number of thoughts. We can think up new ways of, of making a living, new social arrangements, new theories as to where we can come from. And social and cultural change you see to a much greater extent in the human species because we've got these combinatorial minds that can spin out all of these possibilities. And so history can send us on one path or another because we accumulate the ideas of our predecessors in a way that you don't see in animals. But we seem never to rest satisfied. Uh, I, I, th I think of the great line, uh, when Hamlet's father is so agitated in the first scene up on the battlements of Elsinore, agitated because he wants Hamlet to do something about the fact that he, the father, was murdered probably by his brother, Uncle Claudius. Uh, and uh, after yet another imprecation by the ghost, Hamlet says, rest, rest, perturbed spirit. Yeah. And it seems to me, we can't, uh, yeah. what else? Why do we rest? Why are we Why always we intrinsically perturbed spirits? Yes. Uh, well, we have, uh, I, uh, it's not a simple answer to the question, but we, ha we have a mind that's capable of framing questions that uh, I don't think we're capable of answer answering. Why are we here? Where did we come from? That's a sensible question to ask about when you find a watch on a, on a street. Who built it? Why did it get there? It may not be a sensible question to ask of why humans exist on, on the planet or why life exists. It may not have an answer even though we're compelled to, to uh, ask it. Um, another reason is that um, uh, we suffer from, from self-deception. Things that seem completely reasonable to each of us seem utterly preposterous and outrageous to someone else. And I think, as the evolutionary biologist Robert Trivers uh, argued, we may be prone to self-deception because the best liar is the one who believes his own lies. And so there may be some design feature of the human mind that causes us to believe our own version of the truth and to be somewhat impervious to the persuasion of others. That's a built-in recipe for permanent conflict and disagreement. Again, it's not, uh, it doesn't lead, I think, to, to cynicism or despair because we do manage disagreement. We have institutions like democracy. We have institutions like science with peer review. We have editorial pages. We've managed to figure out ways of taking these very painful disagreements and getting them not to result in as much bloodshed as they used to. But I think we'll never settle into any utopia in which everyone sees the light simultaneously. And indeed, it's interesting that cultural traditions that insist on that as the proper state of affairs, that everyone agree on the same truth, are the ones that are most murderous when it comes to people outside the faith. Because that disagreement, which I think is a permanent part of the human condition, uh, challenges the, is an intolerable insult to the validity of their own belief system. And so I think human happiness, not, not utopia, which I don't think is, is attainable, but human improvement comes from, realize, from, from realizing that we're bound to disagree and we're bound to think that the other person is totally out of his head. Well, for a moment, you suddenly set me thinking what would have been an impossible thought for me until this moment. I've really disliked the postmodernists, and I've really disliked um, the basic notions that they uh, have paraded around for the, in recent years, that there's no final truth, there's merely social construction, and that there's no final value, merely that societies construct certain values and we intimidate us into agreeing uh, with those. But what you're suggesting now uh, or rather what they suggest may well be that since if there is no final truth, if there is no ultimate standard of reference by which 
truth and goodness should be measured. And if we all came to believe that, then we might have greater tolerance across groups that otherwise would be at each other's throats. Well, I think postmodernism took a, a core of a reasonable idea, namely tolerance. You don't kill people who you disagree mm -hmm. with. And they took it to the extreme that there's nothing that you can disagree with. There's no fact of the matter. And that's why postmodernism grew out of uh, our uh, Western uh, tradition. Uh, I think postmodernism isn't valid because in science and in argumentation in general, what we try to do is... Uh, build a, a, a social, social institutions in which uh, incorrect beliefs will be spontaneously abandoned by yeah. their holders as opposed to having to kill them or torture them to change their minds. So in science, for example, uh, I may have an erroneous belief. Uh, you're not going to kill me over it, and eventually I might give it up. Under I'm going to refute you with an, a e counter-experiment. E exactly right. Yeah. Uh, that's going to be painful to me, and I may not uh, be born seeing the light. I might resist. Uh, but eventually, the scientific community as a whole will change their mind in the, fa in the face of data and uh, simply because the old system where you hold on to your opinions come what may and you torture or kill people who disagree with you has been ruled out of bounds in this social system. There's much else that I want to question you about including sort of the history of Darwinist theory, Darwinian evolutionary theory and how it really generated the movement that you and a number of other nameable persons like E.O. Wilson, whom we have named, uh, represent. But first, we've got some uh, duties to uh, enact and to take care of. Quick round of commercials, then a quick newscast, and we'll be directly back to Stephen Pinker. And we go back to Steve Pinker. We are drawing from his very important new book, The Blank Slate, The Modern Denial of Human Nature, which is published by... Viking. By Viking. I gave you my copy of the book. That's why <laughs> I couldn't quickly look at the spine. Um... I like to play with counterfactuals, the way historians say one shouldn't, but they do it as well. Um, and the easiest way to generate a counterfactual is to take somebody out of history. Uh, Darwin died of uh, uh, whatever infection he picked up on the voyage of the Beagle. And uh, Wallace was probably uh, killed, as Captain Cook was, by cannibals down in the South Pacific at the beginning of the night. In the, early years of the 19th century. If they, if neither of them had been around, they are the fathers of modern evolutionary theory. Um, and thus, if evolutionary theory had not developed, though probably that's not the case, if probably somebody else would have come along, parallel independent invention for ideas whose time has come is probably the way this goes. Still, if we didn't have Darwin's evolutionary theory, uh, how would modern intellectual life be different? Well, you, first of all, everyone would have to be a creationist because there's no other explanation for how complexity in uh, the, the living world could come about. Um, I think Richard Dawkins said that um, Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled mm -hmm. materialist, uh, simply because um, if you come across uh, an intricate, beautifully engineered um, uh, item like a watch sitting on the road, you have to assume that someone designed it because the odds are overwhelmingly stacked against uh, an arrangement of matter happening to fall together in such a way to tell the time. And indeed, one of the main creationist arguments is that something like an eyeball is even more complex than a watch, and there's no way that it could have arisen by accident. Uh, Darwin's theory has been called the best idea that anyone ever had, and the reason is that it gave an explanation that's not at all intuitive at first for this uh, remarkable fact that 
complexity does exist in the living world. We have eyeballs and hearts and valves in our veins and lubricated joints and so on. And what Darwin showed is that it's an, a, a um, consequence of replication, that as soon as you have replicators, you have to have selection. When you have selection, you uh, inadvertently uh, have the production of uh, a simulacrum of engineering. And likewise, for the, for the mind, the understanding that the mind is a product of the brain, that the brain, like all living things, is a product of evolution, can answer questions uh, about function uh, of the mind in the same way that physiologists uh, have an idea of function when they analyze the body. Why is the heart the way it is? Well, it's a, a device to, to pump blood, and pumps need valves and uh, uh, chambers and so on. Why does but the... But that, that, that runs the risk of of teleological discourse, doesn't it? It suggests that you're attributing purpose. Well, what the, here's what Darwin did. He gave a non-teleological explanation of the appearance of teleology. Mm -hmm. So it looks as if the heart was designed to pump blood, and we can even sometimes usefully discuss it in that way, in terms of design, but it isn't real design. Here was a process without teleology, with nothing but forward causation, no backward causation. An accumulation of accidents which... Uh, were better than the accidents that other organisms were having. Uh, exactly. That is, the, now, and the accumulation was not accidental. Although each thing that was accumulated, yeah. the mutations was accidental. And so, when we now turn that to psychology, what do we have? Well, just as in the case of a, a, a strange creature with uh, some new complex organ, say the lateral lines of uh, a fish. The first question you ask is, what is it for? Why did the fish evolve such a complex, intricate structure? Without that question, you really couldn't do physiology. It would just be you know, meat in particular shapes and, and juices flowing through them. Likewise, in the case of the mind, you can ask the question, what is a particular part of the mind for? Now, that's always been done in psychology without acknowledging Darwin. Why do we see, why do we have stereoscopic vision that uses differences in the two eyes to compute depth? Well, so we don't bump into trees and fall off cliffs. Why do we uh, drink when our body dries out? Well, to prevent us from shriveling up like a raisin. Uh, what's new about evolutionary psychology is just continuing that same line of reasoning to the social realm where the answers aren't as obvious. Why do we fall in love? Why are men uh, attracted to younger women as opposed to uh, older women? Why do we love our children more than someone else's children? Uh, why do we... Uh, why are men more attracted to narrow waist and, uh, and elaborating hip curves? than to a woman who doesn't have that narrow waist. Uh, precisely. So questions like that, where your intuition, uh, which works p perfectly well in the case of thirst and depth perception, doesn't work as well. You've got to look at the latest in evolutionary theory to answer questions like that. And I think the promise of evolutionary psychology is simply doing for our emotions and our social life what we've always enjoyed in the case of the body and in the case of perception and, uh, say, hunger and thirst. But what persisting questions has evolutionary psychology, as it has developed over the last 20 or 30 years, what persisting questions have been illumined by it that we didn't have good grasp on earlier? Uh, family feelings, why there's, um, we prefer our uh, rel blood relatives over uh, uh, non-relatives, and why uh, familial love uh, nonetheless involves conflict, why you have sibling rivalry, why you have uh, um, conflict between uh, husbands and wives, no matter how much they, they uh, love each other, there's still seeds of conflict. Beauty, why we find some landscapes 
uh, more attractive than others or why some people are sexier than others. Well, those are a lot of wives. Uh, Give me some of the answers to those wives. Well, in the case of, um, say, of, of, uh, of physical beauty, many mm -hmm. of the cues to physical beauty are uh, indicators of uh, underlying fitness and fertility. Like the one I mentioned a moment ago about the narrow, the, yes, the the narrow waist, waist and the waist hip ratio of, of 0.7 yeah. uh, correlates physiologically with fertility in women. That is, f women and, and 0.9 for uh, fertility in men. Because, and in fact, obstetricians have long used waist hip ratio as a sign of whether the, the woman is uh, hormonally uh, normal or suffers from some endocrine mm -hmm. condition. Conversely, a man with a waist hip ratio of 0.7 is likely to have something wrong with his hormones. Now, we can't do the physiology when we go on dates, but by paying attention to the shape of our dates' bodies, we're in a sense doing a quick medical assay as to whether they're hormonally or, normal. Or, to put that in more, in, in more Darwinian terms, those who were disposed by their own genetic makeup, using that very loosely, to be attracted to wastes of that sort, uh, were the ones who would mate with those more fertile, more uh, maternal, maternally potential women, and thus they would breed more in kind than other men who didn't have that same taste. Uh, and they were more likely to become our ancestors. Thus, uh, more to likely to become our ancestors. To, to and we would have ancestors. the same, the same. Uh, That's right. Proclivities with regard to female form. We, we inherited those tastes, and and vice versa for women, women selecting men. Mm -hmm. Another example is um, taste for for a physical environment. Um, all organisms have an optimal physical environment. That's why we, we talk about a fish out of water. Um, and humans are no exception. There are certain kinds of landscapes that we find appealing, ones that have bodies of water, that have uh, greenery, that have flowers, that have animals, that have uh, safe spots in which you could hide but have a panoramic view of the land in front of you. Each one of those features, which can be found in calendar art, in landscapes, in photography, uh, worldwide um, can, can be shown to have some survival advantage. Water is just is too obvious to mention because we, ha we, we need something to drink and before there was plumbing and uh, bottles of uh, Evian you had to get your water from, uh, from the land. Um, uh, flowers are uh, signs of future fruit. Um, animals eat us and we eat them. So the kinds of things that grab our attention kinds of things that make a landscape interesting to look our at. Our pro-life. Our pro-life, exactly, the yeah. pro-life. Mm -hmm. uh, another example is, our, is the moral sense, the fact that um, uh, we have feelings like guilt, sympathy, gratitude, trust, righteous anger. Um, all of those remarkably turn out to be pretty close to the strategies that a game theorist would think up in terms of playing the reciprocity game. That is, we often depend on favors of others, and we can often come out ahead by extending a favor to someone with the expectation that it will be returned when fortunes reverse. That, uh, you scratch my back, I scratch yours, uh, is the, the, the common uh, saying. Now, there you're skirting what has been a central question in sociobiology. Uh, what are the roots, or what is the functionality of altruism, particularly sacrificial altruism? Yes. And uh, I think you're taking a, you're saying, as E.O. Wilson possibly does not quite say, that uh, there is no real altruism. There's always a look for payoff. Uh, well, it, it, I wouldn't put it that way. In terms of genes, there's no real altruism. The genes are just out to make copies of, of more genes. But one of the ways that genes can be selfish is by building humans who are selectively unselfish in particular circumstances. So it's not that deep down we're selfish, 
but uh, our unselfishness uh, in terms of how we live our lives can be described metaphorically as a kind of selfishness of our genes. Mm. But they're very different, and I, and I argue in the blank slate that some of the the revulsion the, uh, to sociobiology, the idea that it's somehow uncouth or debasing, comes from confusing the language that we apply metaphorically to genes, namely that they're ruthless competitors, and assuming that that means that deep down we must be ruthless competitors. That's, I think, a confusion of two levels of analysis. Back uh, an hour and 10 minutes ago when we started this program, and I was playing that silly game about my trip to my former graduate student's house and looking at his baby, uh, we got, I developed the blank slate thing by trying to evoke parental guilt or adult guilt over traumatizing an infant. Uh, you argue in this book that, in fact, and you agree with a particular woman, I forget Judith her name. Judith Rich Harris. Judith Rich Harris, who did a whole book on this. And the argument is that, essentially, parents have very little influence on outcomes for their children. Well, parent, parents have an influence in, in some ways. Parents can certainly harm children by abuse and neglect. Uh, but within the normal range of what, what decent humans, decent mm -hmm. parents would do, it's surprisingly hard to measure an effect of parenting on the uh, personality and intellect of the adult. And indeed, some of the researchers that tried uh, went all out to try to document such effects, kept turning up em empty-handed. Now, it's easy to fool yourself into thinking you found an influence of parenting because studies that simply look at what parents do and how their children turn out and assume that that proves an effective parenting often don't control for genes. So, for example, it certainly is true that parents who bathe their children in language have children with more advanced language skills, but you don't know if that's because of the uh, language input or simply that articulate people tend to breed articulate children. When you do the right controls, that is when you redo those studies with adopted children, then you find that there are few or no long-lasting uh, effects of having a particular par set of parents on how you end up. Likewise, uh, the, the symmetrical experiment is if you look at compare biological siblings who are separated at birth with those who are reared together, you find that being reared together uh, adds very little or no similarity. So we all know the stories of the identical twins separated at birth who have all these amazing similarities. Yeah, those Minnesota twin studies especially show a vast amount of that. Yeah. Uh, but what people often forget is the second radical conclusion of those studies, the first one being that identical twins separated at birth end up highly similar. The second conclusion is they're no more similar when they were reared together. So anything that parents do to all the children in a household doesn't seem to have any effect we can measure once we control for genes. So to use a modern language, what, uh, what you are asserting here is that we are very heavily programmed uh, as we enter the world. Well, there, there are actually two different conclusions. One of them is that we're, we're partially um, uh, influenced by our genetic makeup. The other conclusion is that the part of us that is not genetically influenced may not be influenced by parental treatment either. So there's a, a big factor that's not genetic. It's certainly not the case that it's all in the genes. But having controlled for the part that's in the genes, we can now ask the question, where does the non-genetic part come from? What's the and, the assumption, and the assumption that it's parents is probably wrong. My hunch is, when it comes to personality and intellect, that it, it's chance. Uh, 
namely uh, which way you were lying in the womb, whether a growth cone of an axon zigged or zagged during the development of the brain. So, but it's not experiential. It's not what happened to you in the playgroup, and not what what your parents said or did to you. Not what's happened in the playgroup. Not what happened in school. Yeah, etc. Right. It's I mean, rather extent, other aspects of biological development. Yeah, just yes. Uh, as an answer to some questions, and here this is why why I, I make that that claim. You look at identical twins who were brought up together. They share their genes and they share virtually all of their environment. Mm -hmm. What are the correlations between them? Usually about 0.5. That means that about half the variation is neither genetic nor environmental as we currently understand it. Now I should add that there's another factor and that is cultural differences. When you look at those identical twins, they're both Americans. It's not like one of yeah. them is a Yanomamo warrior and the other is a, is a, a Jewish doctor from Manhattan. Um, so certainly culture has an, uh, a, an, a profound effect, but within a culture, if we look at the difference between two uh, Americans, or two, say, middle-class Americans, we can't find that effect. Yet if you go across cultures, and this goes way back to Darwin, something that most people don't know about is that he did a good deal of study of um, the expression of emotion Indeed. via the human face. Paul Ekman has developed that work a great deal in more recent years. And you do find sort of universal modes of emo emotive expressiveness across cultures, don't you? Uh, indeed, and uh, Darwin w was uh, was one of the first to gather those data, probably yeah. the, the first. So that is true. Above we all express anger and and surprise and delight and with disgust. the same facial with the same facial. And indeed, uh, it goes movements. way beyond that. Donald Brown, an anthropologist, has compiled a list of some 300 human universals. Mm -hmm. Those are the ones that he found documented in every human culture, including sexual jealousy, uh, including uh, weapons. Uh, affection uh, that's expressed, mm. division of labor by sex. And some conception of transcendent, uh, some, of the transcendent, indeed. some God, indeed. one way or another. Uh, conflict, homicide, prescriptions against homicide. Yeah. So Darwin started the ball rolling, and it wasn't for uh, at least another century that other anthropologists yeah. started to look at human universals. We uh, need to pause for the usual reasons, uh, and it is time as well to invite telephone calls. The number, as ever, is 591-7200, 591 7200 and if you want to pose a question or offer a thought to Stephen Pinker now's the time that you should be dialing up we'll get to the phones uh, quite quickly after those commercials 591 7200 if you're listening on the internet at some uh, far distance on another continent or uh, on either coast and would rather email us the email is available to you the address extension 720 at tribune.com extension 720 as one word at Tribune, T-R-I-B-U-N-E dot com, or 591-7200. We look forward to your questions and comments and contributions. Please get them in quickly. We will return right after this. For a while, all of our phone lines were filled, but we do uh, uh, edit a bit in the booth, so not everybody makes the cut. So at the moment, there are one or two lines available. If you've been trying to reach us, try quickly again, 591-7200. And here is the first caller. Hello, you're on the air. Hi. Um, there's an enormous gulf between the most advanced animals and humans in terms of moral development and artistry and many, many, many other things. Uh, from a scientific point of view, how is that explained from a religious, biblical point of view? That's where the hand of God comes to create human after he's created animals. Um, so I just wonder how... Uh, how much we know about the transition between animals and humans. 
Mm-hmm. Well, we have every reason to believe that humans are animals, and there's uh, there are some things that humans do extraordinarily better than any other animals, but then there's some things that some animal species do extraordinarily better than other animal species. The uh, trunk of the elephant, the sonar of, uh, of bats, the uh, ability of uh, certain birds to remember the locations of 10,000 nuts. So evolution can select for extraordinary abilities in certain species but not others. In the case of humans, we know that our closest cousins, chimpanzees, do show uh, ability to make tools, an ability to form social coalitions, uh, a memory for past favors extended which and, and uh, denied, which probably uh, is accomplished by emotions like gratitude and anger. So it's not as if hu- the remarkable human abilities came out of nothing, although they were certainly elaborated in the human lineage far beyond what we see in chimpanzees. Probably the chimpanzees uh, set us on, uh, or the ancestor that we share with chimpanzees set us on an unusual path because of a combination of things like having hands, which are useful, uh, which allow us to make tools, living in a, uh, a social group, which means that knowledge can be pooled, uh, eating meat, which means that you can afford an expensive brain, uh, and perhaps having uh, high-developed vision and spatial abilities, which gives one a, uh, an ability to conceptualize things in, in three dimensions. Those are some speculations about what set one particular species of primate on the path to uh, expanding its brain as opposed to other abilities. My only thought is it's just amazing, though, the enormous gulf between uh, between chimpanzees and us and all sorts of things, including moral reflection and the evil which we can do or the good that we can do as well as a number of other activities but nonetheless i see your point and it surely it, to me it's always been a source of amazement thank you sir for the call sure interesting contribution five nine one seven two double zero and we go to this caller hello you're on the air hello thanks um i'm a physical scientist and a teacher and, and as such i'm very concerned about controlling variables when experiments are done and being aware of sources of error in our experiments. Um, as a physical scientist, that's difficult to do, and my question and concern is, to what extent can uh, sociobiologists control variables when doing experiments? How do you measure the sources of error, and, and what effect does that have on the conclusions that one draws as a sociobiologist? Well, certainly you're never going to control the variables as well as you do in uh, in the physical sciences, and that's something that we pretty much have to live with, uh, not as sociobiologists, but just as any scientists who study human beings. And um, studies of, of human behavior, there's no, no no real discipline of sociobiology per se in, uh, in studying humans, but it's just the methodology of the uh, social sciences and psychology in general. You try to control things as best you can. You use statistical procedures to try to keep uh, over-interpretation of chance within uh, acceptable bounds, p probability of less than 5% or 1%. Uh, you, you criticize other people's experiments, and if they fail to control a variable, you attack it, and then the original scientist will try to improve the methodology and control it. So it's just ordinary psychology with all of its perpetual limitations compared to the physical sciences. And, and so then, are you saying that the, the conclusions that, that the sociologists and psychologists draw need to be um, looked at with more skepticism, therefore? 
than than conclusions drawn by physical scientists or even biologists. You know, the hard sciences. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. There's no getting around that. Although it's still better to do the best experiments you can and collect the best data you can and submit them to uh, the intense criticism of a, a scientific community than to base it on superstition and tradition and uh, hunches and intuition. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and one final point is that even our sources of air, uh, we need to be, you know, you mentioned P less than 0.05 or, or, or whatever. We have to be very careful with statements like that. They sound very scientific and mathematical and therefore they sound valid but they're only valid to the extent that we are aware of the sources of error and and the sources of error that are introduced into our experiments that we're not aware of you know even in my field that it, it throws a degree of, of caution if you will to mm -hmm. the conclusions that we draw uh, I, I, I nothing I would disagree with that's absolutely right thank you very much we thank you sir mm -hmm. let me read you uh, one of a number of emails um, I do have a question for your guest. I am curious why parental influence, when it's positive, does not have much effect or uh, on our outcome. However, when this influence is negative, it has a dramatic uh, effect on our outcome. Could your guest comment on this, which in my mind is a paradox? Uh, well, there, there are a lot more ways than you, you could harm a child than, than help them. Um, I think just because there are a lot more ways in which you could harm a living thing than helping it. Uh, just because we're extraordinarily improbable collections of matter and there are a lot more things that can go wrong that can go right. Um, but um, uh, I should add that both the positive and the negative things that parents do to children have an, uh, a profound effect on their relationship with the child and on the child's happiness. So when I say that there's research suggesting that parental, parental treatment doesn't mold the personality of their children, uh, it's important to realize that it doesn't mean that you can treat your child in, in any old way. Uh, parenting is a human relationship. Uh, children will grow up with memories of how they were treated. How peaceable and harmonious a household will be will depend on how parents treat the child. And there's simply the ethical responsibility that uh, since parents are in charge of their child's development and of their, their uh, happiness, that, uh, that they shouldn't make their children miserable for, uh, for moral reasons. But you do get, don't you, what has in the past seemed rather anomalous or rather surprising, uh, dreadful uh, parental behavior, drunkenness uh, for that matter, uh, wife beating, things of that sort, uh, even abandonment of one by the other. And kids who are battered with all of that, who we think would be battered but with all of that, and would be traumatized and would be left with uh, some reactive depression, some uh, deep flaw in self-identity, uh, turn out quite often surprisingly well, surprisingly resilient. There is, there, there absolutely is some resilience. I mean, there, there are children who are maltreated who, who have what we would call in adults post-traumatic stress disorder. There are no doubt effects on, on the brain. But um, children, uh, if a child is maltreated and, and not at one of the extremes, they'll often grow up hating their parents. And that's a very good reason not to maltreat a child. But there is a certain resilience that we should not discount in development. A former colleague of mine, Salvador Medi, uh, developed the concept of simple, Amer simple English term, hardiness. Yes. Not hardy, but hardy, H-A-R-D-Y. And people vary in how hardy they are, and uh, that must be linked to uh, 
their genetic makeup, sure. A, a combination probably of genetic makeup and, and chance, because you do sometimes Chance have in biological development. Chance in bio, and for all we know, perhaps in, in life experiences mm -hmm. that have, that set us on some path as opposed to other paths. And the converse is, there are also children who grow up with in loving households with every advantage and end up uh, miserable and dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. and we can't really explain that either. 5917200 is our number, and we will return right after this. And we return to Steven Pinker. We are drawing from his very important and utterly readable uh, new book, The Blank Slate, The Modern Denial of Human Nature, Viking the Publishers. And before we go back to the phones, I want to thank you for having freed me from the tyranny of trying to force myself to listen to Stockhausen and Schoenberg and all those other guys. I, know, I don't really like that sort of music. And you now explain to me that uh, it runs against my human nature. Yes. Well, in a lot of uh, modernist art forms in the 20th century, when they were taken to extremes, mm -hmm. they really were based on a, a militant denial of, hu of human nature. The idea that melody and rhythm were just bourgeois tastes that in a more advanced musical style could be done away with and people could appreciate atonal music and serial uh, 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 music as much as they do melody. Uh, it was part of, I think, a widespread movement in the elite arts um, to deny all of the uh, tools that artists had used for millennia to evoke human pleasure. Well, what, what is that? But how does that violate human nature? Well, I think uh, rhythm and uh, is a, a universal in music. Um, certainly not melody in the conventional Western sense, because that's that doesn't. Uh, pervade all genres of music, but it may be that West, that Western music and Indian music and the more advanced genres, technologically uh, found ways to exploit u uh, universal human tastes that perhaps other cultures haven't invented. Is there also yet. a built-in preference for certain harmonic intervals? Do you think? Yes, certainly. In fact, uh, neonates prefer concordant musical intervals mm. to discordant ones, for example. Um, in uh, in the visual arts, you had around the same period the, a, um, a militant uh, uh, expressionism and, and abstract uh, f uh, painting driving out any attempt at beauty of uh, the human form or of nature. In uh, fiction, you had people trying to do away with plot and orderly development of characters and omniscient narration. In poetry, there was a movement away from uh, meter and rhyme. In architecture, there was a move away from ornament and human scale and green space. So in all of these genres, around the same, approximately around the same time, you had a uh, moving away from the sources of human pleasure, I think partly on a belief that there's no such thing as human nature and that these former tastes could be done away with uh, with no loss of appreciation. I have a wonderful little story to tell you. I once heard this from an architect in town who was a student of Mies van der Rohe. And uh, somebody, not this guy who told me the story, but some other associate said to Mies once, you know, we really have to face it. People don't like living in your buildings. They move in and they keep complaining that it's cold, that it's not quite human and so on. And Mies van der Rohe, who lived in an old-fashioned apartment house with <laughs> conventional furnishings of a rather ornate variety, said of the people who are uncomfortable in his buildings, they'll have to learn. Perfect. Uh, that that's the 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 uh, purest possible statement of the modernist aesthetic taken to extremes. Mm -hmm. And it began when in 1910, when when uh, Virginia Woolf said that in 1910 human nature changed, uh, announcing the first uh, exhibit of the post-expressionists. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, I don't want to push this 
to too much of an extreme because there is a human aesthetic in form and in color and in uh, abstraction. But when it became a dogma, when it was considered to be bourgeois, to have you know, natural light and ornament in architecture or melody in music, I think that the art form suffered. We will go back to the phones, 591-7200, the number. Good evening, you're on the air. Hello, gentlemen. I was wondering how a sociobiologist with a thick conception of human nature get around this following problem. Uh, you asked if human beings were a blank slate, and the slate, I take it, is the human genome for a sociobiologist, which has about 3 billion base pairs, but only about 100,000 genes. And I looked it up, and scientists today believe that of the 100,000 human genes, approximately 4,000 are brain development genes. Now, that doesn't seem to be nearly enough genes to provide enough chemical cues to, to you know, program the development of all these complex behaviors that are... Uh, sociobiologists attribute to those, to those chemical cues. Yes, I, I discussed that in the blank slate. I mean, the estimates that I've read say that uh, up to half of the genes are expressed primarily or exclusively in the brain. Um, but it's very misleading to, cons uh, to consider biological complexity uh, in terms of the number of genes. Because humans have, say, some 35,000 genes. That's a conservative estimate. It might be more. But a roundworm, which has only uh, some 900 cells, has 20,000 genes. And we're certainly more than 50% more complicated than, uh, than a roundworm. The reason is that biological complexity comes from the way that genes interact, not by how many there are. So in complex organisms, you have gene A affecting gene B, which inhibits C, but only if D is, is uh, being expressed and so on. And uh, you should therefore should not think of each gene as a component, but rather the way in which genes impinge on each other as, as growing an organism. The way James Watson of uh, Double Helix fame put it is, think of a play with 30,000 actors, you get pretty confused. And likewise, the genes are really more like actors than like uh, parts or components. But um, uh, if you think of a, a, a neuronal pathway for some complex behavior, aren't the, doesn't it, isn't it based on all kinds of, maybe tens of millions of specific connections you know, between neurons? Uh, it's certainly true that the genes can't specify uh, every last connection or anything close to it. But nonetheless, we know that they're capable of building a brain that's complex enough so that, for example, when, uh, when you see on the Discovery Channel a baby zebra falling out of the birth canal and then within seconds getting up and running around with its uh, motor control systems and its perceptual systems functioning, there's got to be enough information in there to build a, uh, a fully functioning brain. Um, and it's because the, the, uh, there's an awful lot of information, even in, in 30,000 or 50,000 genes, because each gene is itself an enormous, uh, contains an enormous amount of information in it, information that determines when it's active, when it's not active. There are also regions of the genome that aren't the genes themselves that express how, how and when the genes are uh, turned on and off. So there is an enormous amount of sheer information even if it, in, in the genome, even if it doesn't translate into the count of how many distinct uh, protein coding sequences there are. When I took um, some uh, neuronal development classes, they, they, they addressed this by saying that the basic framework is laid, laid down genetically, but what happens is the, you know, the connections that fire more often get strengthened, and the ones that don't fire get pruned back, and this accounts for the ability to, to have all these complex behaviors that, aren't, uh, that we don't have enough genes to code for. 
Yes, and there, there's there's a great deal of truth to that. But it uh, it certainly doesn't mean that the brain is is just a random neural network that whose all of whose structure comes from patterns of of, of uh, firing together. There also is a great deal of genetically determined organization. Though, as you point out, that uh, is not nearly enough to code for specific behaviors, <clears throat> but only for the ability to <clears throat> excuse me to learn and to develop in along particular pathways. Okay, thank you, gentlemen. We thank you, sir. Very interesting contribution. Um, you've had some uh, difficulties with, or at least some strong disagreements with, or they've had strong disagreements with you, two colleagues down the road in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I have in mind particularly Richard Lewinton and Stephen Jay Gould, who passed away only recently. Uh, uh, what, what, what's the nature of that, that, that uh, disagreement? Yes, well, both of them have uh, been uh, adamant that... Uh, there's no way to tell that any human uh, emotion or thought pattern has been a product of evolution. Ironically, since of course both of them are evolutionary mm -hmm. biologists themselves and are happy to apply evolution to every other aspect of life, uh, both of them have been deeply uncomfortable with the idea that there's really any such thing as human nature, that there are universal human emotions or specific ways of communicating or uh, interpreting the world that are a legacy of, of evolution. Do you, do you think for Lewinton, whom I used to know, he used to be at the University of Chicago, and I watched him becoming radicalized. It happened in the year 68, 69, at the time of the student revolts uh, and a big conflict of relating to all of that that emerged at Chicago, and he got energized by that. And one sort of saw him becoming a Marxist, which he then later sort of fully avowed as his general uh, socio-political uh, uh, ideational style. Do you think his shift to a Marxist analysis of, of reality had anything to do with uh, developing this point of view. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he co-authored a book called Not in Our Genes. I mean, that's, a, mm -hmm. I think, a very good illustration that the blank slate is not a, a, a straw man, but uh, is, is actually argued for. And in the preface, he said that uh, he sees his uh, science as part of the struggle to create a socialist society. Mm -hmm. He wrote another book called The Dialectical Biologist, trying to found a new field of dialectical biology that, in his words, incorporated the insights of Marx into biology. Now, if you're going to do that, first of all, the very idea of a human nature that can be discussed separately from its dialectical interaction with the environment is, is a terrible mistake. And any uh, claim that humans, for example, have tendencies towards, say, preferring their own interests or their family's interests above society, or that uh, conflict might be uh, endemic to human relationships, is a nuisance. It gets in the way of the utopian social society of the future that you want to build. Do the misadventures of uh, academician Lysenko in the Soviet Union a number of years ago have any bearing? Well, uh, uh, Lewinton did write an essay on Lysenkoism because it was uh, it is something of an embarrassment because Lysenko was the ultimate dialectical exactly. biologist. Yeah. He uh, in the agricultural realm. Stalin favored him. He's, he, he liked Comrade Lysenko's view, which and was that you can produce better wheat by just treating it. In, in a more demanding way. That's right, as did Khrushchev. He, was, uh, he had power under Khrushchev uh, as yeah. well as late as that. But indeed, Lysenko believed that uh, the idea that plants had a fixed nature was a, uh, a, a bourgeois prejudice. They have a blank slate as well. Uh, they have a blank slate as well, that's yeah. right. Uh, we are late for our last round of commercials. Here they are, and then we'll be directly back. And I can hereby announce that tonight's program will wind up on the audio archive. We've recently put up uh, three new programs. They're available uh, for anybody who wants to hear the program again or hear it for the first time because you happened to miss it last time around. You just go to WGNRadio.com and then link on my name 
uh, and that will take you to the special site for extension 720, where a number of features are av available, one of them being the audio archive, another being our monthly program guide, and yet, oh, by the way, on the monthly program guide, if you go to it and scroll down to tonight's date, uh, namely October 8th, you'll find a description of the program we're now doing, and alongside it, you'll see the cover of Steve Pinker's new book, and if you click on that, you'll be directly in the hands of Barnes & Noble, who will sell it to you at a reasonable discount. Uh, 591-7200 is the number as we go back to the phones, and you are on the air. Good evening. Hi. I'd like to know what you think the cause of milk's uh, pet peeve is. Milk every, often says that the freshmen that he teaches, they grow more ignorant and less accomplished each year. And Not each year, every five years or so, you, you get a just noticeable difference. Yeah, if, the, if parental influence is negligent, and is there a sociobiological effect to this? And frankly, what causes cultures in general to just go crazy like uh, the Cultural Revolution in China? Oh, yes. Uh, I, you know, it's, you can say a lot of things about what's uh, happening to the younger, younger and younger generations. Uh, on the one hand, there, are, there have been declines in uh, things that the... Uh, SAT measures. On the other hand, IQ has been going up about three points a decade for uh, something like 70 years, and no one knows why. So uh, the younger generation is actually uh, smarter than us. Uh, My usual complaint, that's what this call is referring to, is that they're very ill-educated. They know yes, very little in terms of cultural literacy. They have, yes. uh, and they don't handle the language well. Yes. Um, and again, it's not clear that, that parents are, are to blame. No. Uh, I think the schools are, have much more responsibility in that regard. Schools and, and, and peer groups. Yeah, um, but the schools they, are run by people, too, just like, peer, just like parental influence. They're just another subset of people affecting these kids. What changes them, then? Oh, yeah, that's, uh, I, I'm probably not competent to, uh, to answer that. There's no doubt. I mean, if, if what you're getting at is, is there some... You know, genetic or sociobiological explanation, then absolutely not, because there, there's, there's no reason there, to believe. I think there's an ideational explanation, sir. If you want to find any particular culprit, it's uh, educationism. It's the kind of pedagogical theory which flourishes in the teachers' colleges. Is there a sociobiological basis, though, for, say, Hutus and Tutsis, or something where just everyone, where it's got to be for a disadvantage evolutionarily? Well, it it's... Uh, not a, a, a disadvantage evolutionarily to get rid of people who are competing with you for land or resources or uh, members of the opposite sex, even though it's morally uh, atrocious and deplorable. But evolution doesn't necessarily select for for uh, for what we value. Um, I don't think there's going to be a sociobiological explanation for any concrete political uh, historical event because historical events are. Uh, overwhelmingly determined by the the uh, particulars of that circumstance, but among the, the particulars are certain human uh, motives and desires and ways of looking at the world that are part of the uh, that are ingredients in the mixture. So, sociobiological explanation of what took place on a particular day is, I think, barking up the wrong tree. But why people, uh, the world over and across historical periods, have traits like self-centeredness, uh, greed, expansionism, and for that matter, a desire for peace and a, a search for methods of conflict resolution. There, I think, sociobiology can provide insights. Sir, we thank you for the call. Let me read you this um, on the email. Um, can the topic you were discussing earlier about disproving someone's long-held belief with peer review and editorials, etc., 
be applied to changing international political public opinion, specifically changing the outlook of one Saddam or other political leaders. Well, in the case of, of Saddam, that might be uh, too much to ask for, but we do see in international affairs uh, uh, some ability to learn the lessons of history. I mean, in the, the formation of the, the European Union, the fact that uh, France and Germany are very unlikely to declare war on each other in, in the coming years, um, you, you do see people confronted by reality, people who, who uh, make decisions in the formation of the United Nations, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And I tend to think of that as a similar mindset to the scientific mindset of letting reality uh, check your ambition and uh, be open to the possibility that beliefs that you used to hold might be in error. Then you've got a sunny view of the ultimate human future, do you? Well, every, every day in every way we get just a little bit better, or every decade or every century? Well, lurchingly and with a lot of uh, reversals and uh, backsliding, but despite the fact that I do have a rather jaded view of human nature, you can't deny that uh, there, there have been improvements. We don't have slavery in the West. We don't have the legal ownership of women. Uh, we don't have uh, lynchings uh, over the, or very rarely over the past 50 years. Uh, we don't have ethnic massacres that, that used to be commonplace. So something, we don't have torture as a uh, method of criminal punishment. We, we have most of those in a lot of other benighted Parts areas of the world, of the world don't we? We, sur we sure do, but um, I, I, you know, maybe I'm grading on the curve, but Western Europe and, and uh, the United States and uh, modern liberal democracies, yeah. I think are doing something right. They, they haven't given us a utopia, but things used to be a lot worse. This is a fine work you've done and a very exciting reading. Uh, but if you do a major work of the sort and you go deeply into a number of relevant literatures, you're bound to be astonished by something you encounter. Were there any things that really surprised you along the way? Well, finding that, um, say, in, in, in the massacre in, in Rwanda, that you uh, had mothers who would actually kill children whose fathers were of the uh, the other ethnic group, say Hutus, Hutu women who would kill a, a baby that uh, whose father was a, a Tutsi. Her own baby. Her own baby. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know how widespread that was, but it did happen. And uh, that, that uh, I, I don't think, I didn't think I could be shocked, but that, that shocked me. Who knows what evil lurks in the heart of man. <laughs> yes. And that does seem to be something of a preoccupation in, of yours in this book. It, it, it does. Um, both the fact that we have uh, the, the capacity for evil, but also we, we have every once in a while found ways around it. And I think this comes from recognizing the mind as a complex system. It doesn't, it isn't just a cauldron of urges, but it also has uh, cognitive mechanisms that can learn lessons of history and apply them to uh, improve our affairs. So it's a, it's a, uh, a jaded realism, but it's not a dark cynicism. Years ago, somebody made the suggestion, I forget who, but somebody of scientific credentials who was um, working in this area broadly, namely the area of psychotropic and psychoactive drugs, suggested human aggression can only be contained by psychoactive drugs, and we've not got the drugs that will do it. <laughs> so to put everybody uh, in, uh, in a more tranquil state chemically. Uh, I, I think there must be other ways, because we know that societies vary in their rates of violence, but presumably without any genetic change, just the difference between the United States and Canada, or between Iceland and, uh, and England, where the, the murder rates are very different, or between the, the rates that we have now and the rates of, say, a, uh, a couple of hundred years ago, which actually were much higher. 
So I don't think you can ever eliminate violence, but you can reduce it by orders of magnitude through certain so social changes, which I think we only dimly understand, but constitutionally uh, governed rule of law and a police force under the control of a democracy look like they're some of the most effective violence reduction techniques ever uh, invented. And maybe cathartic outlets to work it off, as like football every Saturday. <laughs> yeah, like football and verbal aggression and angry letters in the yeah. New York Review of Books. Uh-huh. And uh, faculty fights. Uh, Academic backstabbing, email flame wars. Exactly. <laughs> it's been great seeing you again, and I've very much enjoyed talking with you. And I, I do hereby once again assert that we will have this program up on the uh, on our audio archive on our website within a few days. The book by Stephen Pinker that we have been talking about and drawing from, though there's much more in it than we could possibly get to in a mere two-hour program. Uh, that book is titled The Blank Slate, The Modern Denial of Human Nature. It is published by Viking. And with that, we come close to the end of the available time. I just want to tell you that tomorrow night, uh, we're doing a program celebrating the 80th anniversary of Poetry Magazine, which has been edited for a long time here from Chicago. Jay Parisi, the editor, and an associate, Stephen Young, will be with us. We'll read a lot of poems and talk about the nature of that art. That's tomorrow at 9. Until then, a cordial good night to all. <laughs>